This morning, I, um, I'm not going to lie, I was struggling with the word to begin with, and uh, I, I so, I just, I love what the Spirit does, because that's the one thing that binds us together in unity, right? We've got so much in common, not in common, but, um, but the one thing that binds us together is the Holy Spirit, you know, our salvation through Jesus. And uh, as Lisa had shared, you know, we don't want to miss out on anything God has for us. We embrace the, the, the force and all the gifts of the Spirit. We want all the fruits of the Spirit, you know, uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, um, you know, and, and a lot of those do kind of make us uncomfortable, but it's in a good way because it's just, it's what the, the, the it's when we're out of our comfort zone that we grow the most. It's usually whenever I am outside of my comfort zone and I've reached the end of me that is God because <laughs> it can't be me. It's kind of there where we get sheltered by his presence and, and he's able to do things that he couldn't do if we just keep relying on ourselves, on our own resources, our own abilities. We'll never experience the, the abundance that God has given us through his salvation till we're beyond ourselves. So if you're in that uncomfortable place, it's all right. If you've been given no hope elsewhere, it's all right. You've, you've got it in Christ. You have an answer. You have a solution. And um, it's always exciting because, like, Sharon and I don't really communicate at all, but it seems like almost every Sunday we come and the Spirit's just speaking the same message, you know? It's, it's like we're hearing him or something. And it, always, it, and it gives me boldness and confidence, you know, whenever I, I hear that, and it's exciting. And, um, you know, this morning, however, I kind of felt like we were on, a, um, on a, uh, a seesaw all through the service, and the Spirit kept doing it all through the service. And I'm like, okay, Lord, you're saying this, but you gave me this message, and I kind of, I'm seeing how they go hand in hand, but they seem opposite, and so just bear with me. There's a good message in the end of this, through this, but we like the good things of God, but there's some things we have to go through to get there. There's a reason they're good, and that's what we're going to share about this morning. Um, you know, I love teaching and preaching the word that all the promises of God, um, I love the hope that it brings. I love the joy that only the Holy Spirit can bring that surpasses all of our circumstances and understanding. And, you know, I love looking at the, the solutions. I'm a solution person, not a problem person. Um, you know, I, I get whiny about problems and I recognize them, but I, I, I don't ever want to present a problem without a solution. You know, it drives me crazy when I don't have the solution. Um, so this morning... We're going to go through a little bit of a journey here, and uh, I'm going to start with just how this was revealed to me, and that was a little bit of a journey that uh, our family went through recently. I don't know if any of your families or if you individually have gone through um, what felt like a series of unfortunate events, right? It's like you're living out Limity Snicket's hole, you know, just it seems like things are bad, and it just goes from bad to worse, and it just goes darker and darker, and you're just like, what could possibly go wrong next? And you actually get to the point where you're expecting something to go wrong, right? I mean, just be honest, we live in this flesh. I know we shouldn't do that, but you do, you know? You just throw your hands up and like, what's, what's next, you know? Um, one of those events that God kind of brought this revelation through was through an experience. I think you all had the same experience with your beautiful Acadia, right? Um, I made a mistake of running low on oil one time. A engines don't like to be ran out of oil, they don't like it when your oil's chunky and thick, and I think Rick still has our oil in a cup over there to show everybody how not to maintain your car. Yeah, we, we made it for almost a year, almost a year after that happened, before our engine decided to just blow along 422, um, and it, it was like, 
it was like blow, blow, like a piston through the side of the engine. I can see inside the thing, you know, just spew out all of its oil at one time. The, the car filled up with smoke. Like the car's like coming to a halt and Becky and I are running down 422 away from it because we think the thing's on fire, you know. I mean, the whole car just filled up with smoke and it was just, it was scary, you know. Um, but, but end of the story, our car was broken. Our car was broken. The interesting, the very fair thing about cars is that they hold their value pretty well, especially right now if you're looking to sell a car, as long as it drives. I guess it's kind of fair, you know, I mean. <laughs> so as fast as our vehicle went from 60 to zero, the value plummeted just as quickly. The ironic thing is we were on the way to the dealership to trade it in, and they knew the issues. They knew the engine was starting to tick. You know, we were honest and fair about it. And they're like, you know, we can still give you something for it. So we were on our way to the dealership to trade it in when that happened. I called them up. I'm like, happen to have a tow truck candy. And they're like, no deal. Nope, we don't want it. You, you're on your own, <laughs> you know. I guess it's fair, but, you know, it's frustrating. Um, but, man, who knew an engine was such an important part of a car, you know? I mean, who, who figured? <laughs> Figure you just cut a hole in it and Fred Flintstone that thing, you know? It's seven passenger. You, you, you get seven people in there, you can get that thing going, right? <laughs> in our culture, when things are broken, they become valueless. I'm not saying everybody's that way, but generally speaking, when things break, they're designed to get tossed out and you go buy a new one, right? Nobody wants anything that's broken. It loses its value tremendously. Um, literally, we woke up and that, that car was worth 10 times in the morning what it was in the evening. It literally dropped in value that far, you know, even though that was the only thing wrong with it. But just put a brand new set of tires on it, you know. I got people nickel and diamond me. I'm like, I just put 700 bucks in tires on it. Like, I'm, I can't take less than that. I mean, come on. I'll, I'll just put it on blocks and sell the tires for Pete's sake, you know. <laughs> uh, the, it's... It's interesting, but we get it, you know? Things aren't just made the way that they used to be. Things aren't made to be fixed, they're made to be tossed. It's just a reality of the culture that we're living in right now. You want something newer, you know? So you toss out the old and you're in with the new. And we, we take that mindset and we apply it to like everything in life. I mean, relationships, right? You know, the, trading the wife for a new model, you know? She, she's, she's getting a little squeaky and loud lately, a little cranky, you know? You know? But you, but, you know, the reality, the grass is always greener where it's watered and maintained and cared for, right? So if your spouse is getting a little squeaky, maybe you need to up the love, right? Right? You know? Anyways, I'm sorry. I know. Um, there's a very, misconception, very common misconception out there. Not only do we apply it to our relationships and apply it to all these other areas of life, but we have a tendency to apply it to God and to think that God sees things the same way. You know, before we go to church, we've got to get our lives right, right? People think that out there. Generally, if you talk to people on the street, that's what a lot of people think, you know? Well, man, I don't know about going to church. I've got to, I got to give up this, this, and that, and, and I've got to do that before I go, you know? And it's like you've got, you got to put on this act and put on this show and be something that you're not, you know? It's the only way you're going to be accepted by God. It's really a mindset that's out there. 
Um, we don't want to be hypocrites, right? You know, before we approach God, we got to stop sinning. And we're only worthy to approach God. We're only worth anything to him if we live a good life, if we got our lives together. You know, and I, I love this, this quote from Timothy Keller. He said, religion operates on the principle that I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. I got to get my life right. I got to stop sinning, you know, before God will accept me. But the operating principle of the gospel, and that's the truth of God. That's what the word of God teaches. That's how God's kingdom operates, is that I'm accepted by God through what Christ has already done. Therefore, I obey. I don't obey to be accepted by God. I obey because I've already been accepted by God. He accepted me as I was in my sin and shame. The bonehead that I am, God still accepts me. And it's because of that that I want to live life his way. It, it, it's, it's a night and day difference, but the lives look the same. They want to honor God. They want to live life his way. They know that his ways are best. The difference is I'm not trying to earn God's love. I'm not trying to earn my salvation. I'm not trying to be right before God. He's the one that made me right. He's the one that did everything right while I was doing everything wrong. It, it's, it looks the same, but it's as different as night is from day. It's totally radically different, right? But that's the reality. Nothing could be further from the truth. And this religious lie has put up a lot of false barriers that keep too many people away from God, thinking that they have to do something before he'll accept them. But it's not true. He already paid the price. It's finished. He'll accept you right where you're at, right where you are, right? God will never, ever turn his back on someone who calls out to him in their sin, in their brokenness. Hypocrisy is not an honest, broken, sinful person who goes to church to seek and serve God. Hypocrisy is somebody who goes to church and claim that they're sinless and perfect and look down on other people, right? That's what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy isn't you put out your cigarette before you walk in the doors of the church. That's not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is, I don't do anything wrong, but then behind closed doors, you're like doing whatever the heck you want to do, right? You put on that religious facade, you put on the mask, right? That's hypocrisy. And Jesus preached a lot about it. He had a real problem with hypocrisy in God's people. Hypocrisy isn't, you're a broken, sinful person, and so you chase after God because you need his salvation. That's not hypocrisy, that's reality. In fact, that's what the gospel's all about. That's what the good news about Jesus is about. Hypocrisy is acting like you're something you're not. Putting on a face to please man when God knows the truth. That's why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, right? They look good on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. The gospel, the spirit-transformed life, happens from the inside out. God does the work in you, and then your acts change as a result. So if you walk through these doors and... Whatever sin you want to call out, you know, if you're wasted and high and you don't have a penny in your account, and whatever the case might be, you know, whatever sin-consumed state you might imagine, if you walk through these doors and you come here in that condition because you know you need Jesus, you're at rock bottom, it's exactly where you need to be. And every single person here, they had better come alongside of you, accepting you, loving you, and helping you have that encounter with Jesus right here, right now. That's what we are called to be. That's what we're here for. That's why the church exists. That's why Jesus gave us this concept and idea of this faith community. It's to accept people and, and to bring them into the fullness, the full purposes that God has for them. 
This isn't some like new age, hyper grace, seeker friendly, kind of watered down concept of the gospel. It's the reality of God's word and it's a biblical truth. It's, it's the reality of God's kingdom. Um, the world doesn't place much value in broken things, but God incredibly values us when we are broken. In fact, he sees beauty in our brokenness. We don't. We just know there's something wrong with us, and we can't fix it. We try fixing it, but we just can't fix it. We need him. We know we need somebody to make us whole and to bring healing and to bring deliverance. We need a new life, and we know we can't get that on our own. So we turn to Jesus. He's the only one who can do it, right? Jesus sees brokenness as something beautiful, not because he loves to see people in their sin and shame. It's because when they come to him, he can finally, he finally has your permission to do everything he planned on doing. He finally has your permission to set you free from all that weightiness and all the snares of the world, to set your feet on solid rock and to form you into the person you were created to be, to reach your full potential in him. He can finally take away all that nastiness in life and give you his joy. But there's a process that has to take place. It always ends in his promises. It always ends in joy. It always ends in hope. But we have to go through a process. God doesn't just toss aside broken things. In fact, the word of God teaches us that he will never, ever turn anyone away from him when he comes to them broken. He will never turn a broken person away. God is a redeemer. He is a restorer. He is a rebuilder. He's not like the world. He won't just toss you aside because you're not good enough. He'll fix you, make you a new creation in him. That's why there's beauty in our brokenness. He is a master craftsman who can repurpose and restore our lives from any condition in any circumstance. I mean, not even a rotting body in a tomb for what was it, three or four days is too far gone for Jesus to call out to a life and to make it new, right? Just ask Lazarus, right? That's who I'm talking about. I mean, if, if that person's not too far gone, if the anointing of God in Elisha's bones can bring a dead man to life, I mean, come on, what can the anointing of God do in your life? What can the power of God do in and through your life? But you got to come to him as you are. Not fooling yourself. You've got to take your brokenness to him. The Bible is full of brokenness because mankind's history and present and our future is all full of it. And this is going to continue up until the day that Jesus proclaims. And you know what I'm going to say here from Revelation? Behold, I make all things new. Until that day when everything is made right, we're going to be broken. And we're going to live with broken people. And we're going to live in a broken world. And you're going to see all kinds of injustice and unrighteousness. In fact, you're probably going to make some pretty unjust and unrighteous decisions yourself. The Bible is full of broken men and women who turn to the Jesus, turn to the Lord. Not a single story where God turns them away. Not a single one. In fact, all of the mighty men and women that you read from, I'm sorry, digitally I don't have this, you know, from cover to cover. Every single man and woman that ever did anything 
good for the Lord, they've got a broken past. And guess what? After they did their mighty thing for the Lord, they had a brokenness after that. Look at Noah. What's the first thing Noah did when he stepped off the ark? Did he say, Lord, I just rejoice. I worship you. I praise you. I'm going to give you my whole life because you saved me and my family. You know what he did? He got plastered, drunk, wasted. Girls, it wasn't him that the girls were like, you know, covering up his sin and shame because he's nude, you know. I mean, anybody have that family member? Anyways, uh, anyway. The, the only righteous person on the face of the earth, the only one who found grace in the eyes of God, who was saved from the wrath of God poured out on the face of the earth, and even then he was a broken man. It's okay. Did God say, I made a mistake there, and he sent a little mini flood to take out Noah and his family too. Did he do that? No. He forgives, he redeems, he restores and he did even greater things through that man's life. We have a tendency to, because this is what the world does, they look at your lowest point in life and that's who you are. Right? The world does that. That's not what God does. God looks at the lowest point in your life and he's like, that's nothing. That's nothing to me. Because he sees your lowest point, but it's overshadowed by the highest point that you have yet to reach. Your best days are still ahead of you. Your best days are still ahead. But we've got to do something. It's up to us. God's always faithful in his part. He'll always fulfill his word, always fulfill his promises. But we need to become beautifully broken. We've got to become broken. This is what Jesus said. We're going to start with this scripture in Luke 18. If you've got your Bibles, you want to open up. Jesus gave this short little parable because there are people who God will turn away, and there are people who God will accept. It's a reality. It's a biblical reality. There are people that God will turn away. There are prayers that he won't listen to. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. Jesus said, to some who are confident of their own righteousness, and look down on everyone else. Anybody ever look down on someone? Oh, come on! Every hand in this, in this place ought to be up. We've all looked down on somebody and been like, what is their problem? Man, they're a mess. Just get your life right, you know? Come on. Let's be honest, I've looked in the mirror and said that to myself. What is your problem? Why do you keep doing this? You know it's wrong. You ask him to forgive you. And you say, Jesus, I'll never do it again. That same day, you done gone and did it again. Come on. If we can't even get our own lives right, of course we look at other people's life because it makes us feel better. The people whose sin is worse than ours, right? But in God's eyes, we're going to talk about that in a minute. All right, so to some who are confident in their own righteousness and who look down on everyone else, and we've all fallen into that category now, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. These are stereotypes in their culture, you know. The tax collector is a sinner of sinners. Can't do anything right. Pharisee can't do nothing wrong. Everything he does, the, the very ground that he walks on is holy ground, you know. Those are the stereotypes of these two people. But 
Jesus sees more than the outside. So he said these two men, tax collector, Pharisee, went up to pray. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. I'm not even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Then cut scene, and then we kind of fade over to the other guy. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He just beat his breast. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. We don't become righteous by living rightly. This this is a kingdom reality. It's not what every church will teach you. You can never become righteous by living rightly, by living righteously, by getting rid of your own sin and doing what's right. You can't. You can't ever become righteous before God that way. If you could, then what was that for? If you could, then why did Jesus have to step off his throne and be like us in this flesh, right? But we still think that way. We've got to cast off our stinking thinking, right? That I've got I to live right so that God accepts me. I've got to live right so that I earn whatever from God. The kingdom of God does not work that way. You can't earn anything from him. You can't do it. We don't become righteous that way. All of our righteousness is still sinful and brokenness to God. It would be like if Arcadia decided to pull its piston back inside itself and just wrap some duct tape around itself, right? Would it, would it be fixed? Would it just fire right up and cruise down the road? No, of course not. And I'm telling you, that's what our righteousness is like. Whoop, messed up there. Let's just whoop, pull that back in and... Let's do it right next time around, right? That thing's still broken, isn't it? Still busted. And so would we be. So are we. Okay? Just in case we... Let's just think like people, okay? Let's say, for example... Well, the Bible says this, Isaiah 64, 6. All of us has become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and the wind... Blow the wind, like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Like the wind, our sins sweep us away. We're all unrighteous. Every single one of us, we're all in the same camp that way, right? The Word of God teaches us that. We were all born into sin. We were not born into righteousness. So all of our righteous acts can never undo that fact. But think about it this way. If a person goes out there and murders somebody, just once, just once, they, they, they go out there and they, they kill somebody. But they go all the rest of their days without ever murdering another single person they encounter. Sure, they did it once, but that was decades ago. They've encountered hundreds of thousands of people. Never once have they ever killed another person. Does that make them innocent of murder? No, right? You know who else was a murderer? Moses. He killed an Egyptian, right? That stopped God's plans and purposes for his life. James 2.10 says this, and we think it's unfair 
until we think of human terms. Because believe it or not, all of us has godliness within us because we were created in the image of God. We know that not a lifetime of non-murdering would make you innocent of murder if you did it once. You're guilty. James chapter 2 verse 10 says this, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. Because according to God's law, the punishment of sin is death. And guess what? It doesn't matter what sin. It's all sin. It all has the same punishment. It's all death. So it doesn't matter if you murdered or lied or hated somebody in your heart or looked adulterously at somebody. Like, you know, it just, like his standards, they just, we're all guilty of sin and we're all deserving of God's wrath. We all deserve death. We all deserve hell. It's just a reality. That's what we deserve. But God had bigger plans for his creation. God had a bigger purpose in all of it. You break one, you're guilty of them all because the penalty is the same for them all. So you can never become righteous on your own. You can never do enough good things to outweigh the bad. And guess what? Our God gets to decide what sin is, too, because he's the creator. Because we were created on purpose and for a purpose, and we, we misunderstand what sin is. Sin, by my definition, because I believe it's a biblical definition, is misusing your life. It's either doing something you're not supposed to do, or not doing something you're supposed to do. That, that's sin. It's, that, that's the biblical definition. And so it's misusing your life. And anytime you misuse something, what happens to it? It becomes broken. When you misuse something, it becomes broken. Anybody ever here get used? Yeah, every single one of us. It hurts, doesn't it? Breaks you down. Causes you not to trust people anymore, right? We've all been let down. We've let ourselves down how many times? Sin's just missing the mark. It's misusing our lives. And we don't get to argue about what is or is not sin when it comes to God and our lives. And guess what? That means that what is sin for you might not be sin for me. Because you were created for a different purpose. You have a different calling. These are what we call arguable matters. I, I, you know, myself, I can go have a drink and I'm fine. It's not a stronghold in my life. It has no hold on me. I mean, I don't anymore since I took, you know, took an oath to become ordained. But before that, I'd have a drink every now and then. What's the big deal, you know? But for some of my family members who struggle with alcoholism, they don't dare even whiff alcohol. If there's going to be alcohol someplace, they ain't there. I, I can hang out with people, and it's not, it's not a temptation for me, you know? But there's some things in my life I, I don't even, hmm. The thought comes in, no, I, I got to get away from that thing, right? It's a stronghold for me. It's a, it's a temptation for me. So we, we've all got these things. So here's this, I love this scripture, Isaiah chapter uh, 29, verse 16. Isaiah said this, how foolish can you be? God's the potter. And he is certainly greater than you, the clay. Should the created thing say the one who made it, he didn't make me. Does the jar ever say, that potter that made me, he's stupid. Isaiah 29, 16, I love it. <laughs> we like to argue with God about what's sin for me, all right? You're like, what's a big deal? You know, I can do this, and it's fine. It's just a little white lie. It's just innocent, right? We like to justify ourselves, don't we? 
but God calls it sin. It's punishable by death. Sin is a serious matter when it comes to the Lord. Sin was so serious, he sacrificed his own son, shed his blood, even when his son pleaded with him three times if there's any other way. It's serious. There's no such thing as a, a white lie or no big deal and all these things we justify away. We are only righteous before God, not by only of our own deeds, but by the, the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ on the cross. He was the only one who never sinned, was never born into sin. He was the only one who was ever righteous. He was the only one that could ever pay the price for sin because he didn't owe it. If I shed my blood for my sin, it's not covering anyone's sins because that's what I owed. I owed it. I paid my debt. Jesus didn't owe a debt. He paid it. And therefore, he gets to appropriate it. He gets to hand out and apply that forgiveness for debt to anyone. Salvation's available to everyone. It's the only way we could ever be set free from our sin. It'd be as if though GMC came and they put a brand new uh, Acadia, you know, right off the, the, the 2011, uh, you know, line right in our, um, you know, driveway. That's, that's the only way that vehicle could ever be made new. You can fix the engine, you can rebuild it, you can replace it, but it's still not worth what it's supposed to be worth, right? The only way it's ever going to be worth the value that it was created with is if it was brand new, zero miles on the odometer, right? And that's what Jesus can do for you. It doesn't matter how broken you are. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. Jesus can make all things new, and he's the only one who can. He's the creator, Another pot of clay, another busted up pot of clay can't do anything to make me any better. But the potter, he, he can restore and rebuild things. He can make things new, right? So it's not when we come before God and plead the case of our own righteousness that we're accepted by him, like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. It's only when we humbly confess our sin and ask for mercy that we are accepted by God is when we go to him broken. I don't think we're broken enough about our sin, I really don't. I know I'm not. I know there's some things that I live with that I know isn't right. But socially it's acceptable. It's not that big of a deal. I've got a sin in my life that's hidden. Neither, neither. You don't even know about it. <laughs> but guess what? God knows about it. The spirit living within me knows about it. He doesn't like it because he knows I'm broken because of it. When you think, we're going through this Lent season in the traditional churches, you know, we don't do traditional things here for the sake of tradition and new hope, but there's something powerful about taking time to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Because in the Old Testament, when I had to take a bull, ram, lamb, pigeon, dove, when I had to take a year's worth of my salary, that I worked hard to fatten this thing up. It's got no blemish at all. I could get top dollar at the market, you know, go up to Belknap, and man, I could really rake it in with this thing. When I got to take that thing and just slaughter it, if I had to write a check for a year's worth of my salary every time I sinned, I wouldn't run to sin. I'd steer clear from it. But when I'm like, what's a big deal? Jesus will forgive me. Stop and think about that phrase. Stop and think about whipping Jesus, tearing his flesh open, putting him up there on that cross, hammering those nails into his wrists. You wouldn't say, he'll forgive me. What's the big deal? Would you? 
That's a reality. We need to live with that in mind. We need to live differently. Not to earn God's favor, but to thank him for what he did. And not to do it all over again. We need to be beautifully broken so that God can rebuild us. We need to be beautifully broken so that God can restore us. We've got to be serious about the sin in our lives. Stop just excusing it away and writing it off like it's no big deal. Just because you can live with it doesn't mean you're truly living. He paid a price for a more abundant life than you're embracing right now. I often haven't quoted these verses together because they bother me. I'm going to be honest again this morning. I was cringy last week. I'm cringy this week. I quote these verses in sermons all the time. I always skip one. Okay? Confession time. I never made sense of it. It makes me uncomfortable. I just don't like it. It's not the God I know. But maybe I just don't know God well enough. He wrote it. He put it between these verses that I always skip. So I'm going to read them this morning. I talk about resisting the devil so he'll flee, right? Spiritual warfare. Resist him, he'll flee. Love it. I talk about drawing near to God so that he draws near to you, right? Who moves? Not God, us. We draw near to God, he draws near to us. I talk about how we need to humble ourselves before God, right? So that he lifts us up. You humble yourself, he will promote you at just the right time and in just the right way and in any area of life. I love it. I've got so many testimonies of where God did that. Whenever I just humbly kept working for this bonehead boss, and the next thing you know, pff, God brings all things to light. I had a prophetic word that I was going to get my salary doubled, and whatever. A prophet comes in here to New Hope and says he's going to do that. You know, that, that's like send, you know, send me $10,000, and I'll send you a hanky that'll make all your problems go away, you know? I'm like, whatever. Guess what? The Lord did it. The Lord did it. Blew me away. He's able. And then he called me to give it up to come here full time. And I did it, you know. Anyways, because we trust God. We trust God. What God is doing here and now. We keep in step with the Spirit. So i got to keep in step with the Spirit here. I talk about all these things. It's the verse in between that always bothered me. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. And it says this. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Come near to God, he'll come near to you. Oh, this makes me cringe. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Not, not jump, jive, and then you wail, but grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Well, that ain't what Sharon shared about this morning, and Sharon shared the word of God. God's all about joy. I don't want to give up my joy for wailing and mourning and grieving and Ugh, gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll lift you up. See, that, that last verse, it just, it hits different when you keep it in context, doesn't it? How do you humble yourself before the Lord? Wash your hands, purify your hearts. We're double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail, change laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Hang with me, we're not going to end on this, but... I'll tell you, when it comes to sin, there's only one thing that's going to keep me free from all the bondage in my life, in my past. There's only one thing that's going to keep me free from sinning again, from crucifying Christ all over again. And it's being this way about my sin. I ought to mourn what is lost in my life because I've sinned. I shouldn't be rejoicing because of my sin. I shouldn't be laughing about it and mocking it and thinking, what's the big deal, right? 
I've got to wash my hands, clean hands, a pure heart. That, that's what the Lord accepts, right? I can't, I can't remember the scripture, but that's what he accepts. We've got to stop being double-minded about things, right? I think this is a serious sin, but this ain't no big deal, right? Double-minded. This is a huge sin, but this, whatever, everyone's doing it, not a big deal, you know, I mean, whatever. Got to stop being double-minded about things. Sin is sin. The penalty is the same for all. I can't rejoice about my salvation if, I aren't, if I'm not first mournful about my sin. If I'm not serious about why my salvation was necessary, why my salvation was made possible. I, I, I can only find joy in, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because of the weight of my sin. You've got to have both to appreciate it, Right? You've got to have both. You've got to have that seriousness. We need to maintain our hearts and in our minds the cost of our sin to keep us free from it. Paul wrote about grace. Grace empowers you to rise above sin in the same way that it forgives your sin, right? But Jesus said, so should we just keep on sinning? Jesus said, Paul said, led by the Spirit, I believe, should we just keep on sinning so that grace will abound? Do I get more grace because I sin more? Do I get more forgiveness because I sin more? Paul's like, you fool, what are you thinking? You've been set free from that slavery. So why do you go and make yourself a slave all over again? Why would you do that? But we do that, right? And then he wrote this. Here's the point of it all. And I know this is a long message, and please bear with me. I know it's a lot of information to take in. It's not happy, happy stuff. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. I talked about it at communion last week. Man, was that an ouch letter. It was one of those texts where you're like, whoa, who do they think they are? What did they just say? I mean, it's true, but come on, you know. It was an ouch. It was a raw, honest, you got issues. This isn't right. You got to stop this. And then he said this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 through 10, he wrote a second letter. He knew the first one was going to hurt. He struggled to write it, but he knew he had to. We can't just keep sweeping sin under the rug. I can't do it in my life. You can't do it in your life, and we need each other to keep an eye on each other in this area. We don't like accountability, but it's necessary in the church to be whole and complete, to be mature, to be lacking nothing, so we all reach our full potential. See, there's a good side to this. I want to reach my full potential. I don't want people to call out my sin, but you'll never reach your full potential unless people call out your sin. Get it, right? It's a weakness, but that's okay because God will be your strength. We always focus on the good stuff, but we, we can't neglect the, the tough stuff. The only reason God is so good is because I'm so, I, I need him. <laughs> the only reason his salvation's done anything good in my life is because I humbly said, I'm a mess, Jesus. I can't get this right. I can't break free from the sin, and I need you. That's the only reason that he's done something good. So Paul wrote this in the second letter, which is technically the third letter, and he said this. He said, even, even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I now do not regret it. I did regret it because I see my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. But now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. You became sorrowful as God intended. 
And because of that, you weren't harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance. It leads to salvation. And it leaves no regret. I want to live a life of no regret. I don't know about you all. That means i got to hurt sometimes. That means I need my sin called out every now and then. But I need to respond as God wants me to respond to that hurt. In verse 11, Paul said, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. We talk about planting and reaping and harvesting and growing, right? He planted some ouchies in their life. He said, this isn't good, this isn't good, this isn't good, this isn't good. You got to stop accepting this. I mean, dude's with his mother-in-law and you're embracing it in the church. Come on, you know, I mean, there's some messed up stuff that was happening. But then he said, see what this has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every single point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Well, he said they were guilty. How'd they become innocent? Repentance. They agreed. They said, you know what? This is wrong. Jesus, forgive us and help us to not continue this practice. That's how you become innocent. You apply the righteousness of Christ. Jesus, forgive me and equip me and empower me to not do it anymore. Innocent. Every single point that he called the Corinthian church out on, they were then proven innocent of in the future because they applied the righteousness of Christ, because they repented. They changed the way they thought about it. You know what? This isn't no big deal. You know what? This isn't okay. You know what? I don't care if everyone else is doing it. God says it's wrong. It's wrong. Spirit lead me, right? If you say, yeah, you got to let go. So they are now innocent. Innocent. In verse 12, Paul said, So even though I wrote you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party. He didn't take any sides in the matter. He didn't say they're wrong and they're right. He just said, church, y'all are wrong. If there's wrong among you, it's wrong. Y'all are wrong. The world wants you to take sides. That's not what the kingdom does. Because there's only one right side in the kingdom of God, and it's God's side. We all are guilty. So it doesn't matter when we all stand and ask God to judge us right or wrong. He's just like, wrong, you're all wrong, but I can make this right. I can redeem this. I can restore this. Stop nitpicking at each other and just both come to me. <laughs> he can bring healing and restoration and all those beautiful things. And that's what happened in this church. He didn't write on account of the one who did the wrong, nor the, on the part of the injured party. He wrote on the part of God. He said, but rather, not on the account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see yourselves, how devoted to us you are. And by all this we're encouraged. Godly sorrow brings beautiful brokenness. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and salvation. Beautifully brokenness, it brings joy and peace. But only godly sorrow can, if you just feel sorry for yourself, worldly sorrow, feeling sorry about yourself and sorry about your situation, it does nothing. 
you might be able to gather other people around you to feel sorry for you too, and let's just all go down to cheers and drink to the matter, you know, but it doesn't change anything, does it? But godly sorrow, when you get into the presence of the Lord, and when you hand it over to Him, it leads to some good stuff. Good change, good transformation. He can make all things new. Once we see slavery as slavery, we'll walk in freedom from it. Once we see a trap as a trap, we will walk around it, right? Once we realize how heavy a burden really is, we won't pick it up anymore. We may have been stumbling in the dark, but once we've seen the light, we're not going back to darkness again, right? Psalm 30, verse 5. We love this scripture. Sorrow and weeping may last through the night, but the joy of the Lord, right, comes in the morning. How do you get to joy? Sorrow, weeping, mourning. Change your laughter to wailing. Change your joy to mourning. Because we need to get joyful about the right things. We need to laugh about the right things. He sits in the heavens and laughs. We get to laugh too. But we don't laugh about our sin. We laugh because our sins are forgiven and the enemy can't hold them against us anymore. We laugh because the enemy lays out a trap. And we know it's our flesh's weakness. We know it's a temptation. But <laughs> we get to laugh it off and just walk right around it. Because I've got the empowerment of the Holy Spirit now. I've been set free, and I'm going to stay in freedom, right? I'm not going to crucify Jesus all over again. He said it's finished, so let's just agree with him in the deal. It's finished. I ain't going back there. I'm not that person anymore. I'm not going to be that way anymore, right? Got to see our own sin and recognize it for what it is. Um, let's see. Should I go into this? No, I'm not going to go into this. Um, Y'all can read about the whole story of David. David, Bathsheba, Uriah. Remember that, that whole thing, that mess? There's so many examples I could turn to, but this is the one that the Lord pointed out. So I'm not going to go through the whole story, read all the scriptures, read about it yourself. But uh, David, who is a righteous man, who did everything right for so long, getting chased by... Uh, anyways, I'm, I, I want to go into story, but I don't want to go into story for time's sake. It's been a long time. All right, so he screwed up. He sinned. He knew he sinned. But he found the perfect way of hiding it, concealing it, so that nobody knew, right? Right? He committed adultery, the woman became pregnant, husband, oh man, was he devoted to the Lord. He came back from war, but he wouldn't go and be with his wife, he tried to hide it that way, to kind of pawn it off as, that's Uriah's baby, not, not mine, you know? Um, wouldn't do that, so that didn't work, so he just killed off Uriah, um, married Bathsheba, that makes everything right, yeah, right? You know, we, we had sex before marriage, and now she's pregnant, and we'll just get married. It just, that's right, right? And God's like, eh, eh. He sent Nathan. We love the prophetic. But what if God decides to bring a prophetic word to call out your hidden sin? How would you all feel if we just brought a chair forward this morning, and one by one, each one of us sits in it, and we just listen to the Spirit, and we just start calling out what the Spirit reveals, right? Wouldn't feel very good, would it? I wouldn't be the first one sitting down there. I know my stuff now, well, you know it, but... But the Word of God says there's freedom and healing in the confession of our sins. But I don't want to do that. And I'm not about to 
put a screen in here and have y'all come and confess your sins in the, uh, what, what do they call the, the wooden box, the, the confessional, right, or whatever. I'm not going to do that either, because guess what? I can't do anything about your sin. Just go to Jesus, you know? I'm not the Father. You go to the Father, you know? I'll, I'll walk with you there if you want me to, but I can't do anything about it. Okay, so Nathan comes, calls out his sin in the worst kind of way. I mean, just reads his mail. Every detail called out. And that's when David breaks down. And he writes this, oh, some of the most beautiful worship comes out of the most broken of places. We, you know, I, we don't do hymns very often here, but I'm telling you, you read the backstory of some of these hymns, and man, I love those hymns then. When you hear the backdrop of why there was an anointing on them. There was an anointing on them because they were written in a season of pain and suffering and trial and everything. David, after Nathan comes and calls him out, because that's what it says in my Bible, Psalm 51, it says this at the beginning. It's a song, it's for the director of music, that's how I know it's a song. It's a psalm of David, so I know David wrote it. It calls out all this stuff. And David, when he pulled out, you know, when he submitted his song to the Hebrew song select, and he, and he you know, gave all the music and lyrics, and he put a little footnote in it to make sure everyone knew it was his. Pfft, copyright David, you know, you don't want anyone else to steal it. Made sure that it was for the director of music. Not just anybody could pick up the song and play it. It was written for the director. He wanted this song to come forth with skill and talent. And he wrote this little footnote. He said, when the prophet Nathan came to me after I committed adultery with Bathsheba. I not about you, but I wouldn't want that recorded for all of time. But David knew there's only one way to walk in freedom of your sin. You make sure everybody knows about it. Enemy can't hold it against you when you're broadcasting it to the world. It's amazing. There's freedom in confession. All of a sudden, it's got no hold on me. But hidden sin, it's not a foothold. It's a stronghold. The enemy's got you. He can blackmail you anytime he wants. Don't give him that power and authority, right? Here's the song. So if, if that's where you're at, if you're struggling, as we all are, with some kind of hidden sin, and we don't think it's sin, we know the Bible says it's wrong, or let me say it a different way. Sin isn't just doing what's wrong. Sin is also not doing what you're called to do. If you know you're called to do something and you just keep excusing it away, I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough, well, I need to do this and I need to give up this. If you're not doing what the Lord is calling you to do, and you just keep excusing it away, it's still sin. This is what David cried out. Get in your prayer closet, shut the door, open Psalm 51, and just read it out loud. But don't just read the words, pray them as your prayer. And he ends with this. I'm not going to read it for time's sake. He says in verse 16, you don't delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. He knew the prescripted sacrifice for adultery. But he just knew it wouldn't really make things right. He knew it wouldn't undo his sin. He knew that he hurt the heart of God. 
His first confession was against you, Lord, and you alone have I sinned. He didn't care what people thought. He didn't care all the people he had sinned against. He cared first and foremost that he had broken the heart of God after everything God had done for him. He said, you won't take pleasure in any burnt offering. And so in verse 17, he says, my sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Because you, oh God, will not despise it. He knew the only thing he could bring before God that would change anything was to bring himself his brokenness. He knew he had to give all of that to God for anything right to come of this situation. And for those of you who don't know, God will forgive your sin. He usually does not clean up your mess. He loves you too much to take away the consequences of your sin. You are forgiven, but there are consequences. David and Bathsheba lost their firstborn son after seven days. David spent a week fasting and crying out before God. He refused to eat. He refused to be comforted. He was there in sackcloth in front of the whole nation confessing his sin. He knew what the prophet had said, but he thought maybe, maybe God will have mercy. Maybe God won't allow this consequence to take place. Maybe he'll spare me. But it didn't happen. There's a consequence always for our sin. And it is always death in one shape, form, or another. It may not be the loss of your child. For those who have lost a child, please, I'm not trying to make light of that. I can only imagine the heartbreak. But all sin leads to some area of death in our lives in one way or another. There's a consequence a broken spirit, a broken heart, God won't despise. He won't turn you away. Even when that brokenness is a result of our intentional sin as it was for David. Here's the good news. And I am closing on this. Although David suffered greatly, and let me tell you, as if the loss of a newborn baby is not tragic enough, the consequence of David's sin was greater than that. Read through his life. His family became like a modern-day soap opera. I mean, there was rape and incest and murder and, 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 and uh, you know, de deceit. And, and there was power struggles and there was betrayal and everything nasty you can imagine his family went through. Your sin comes with consequences. And do you know why God leaves them in place? It's the most loving thing he can do. So we don't turn back to them. So we don't make the same mistake again. I guarantee the next time he saw a woman bathing out there, he was like, okay, she ain't looking so good no more. <laughs> right? You know? I guarantee the next time there was war, he was on the front lines. He wasn't back in his palace kicking back, you know, sipping on his whatever. Guarantee that got him back where the Lord wanted him to be. Here's the good news. 
His life was miserable afterwards, but not all was lost. Not everything was tragic. Not everything was bad. Although David and Bathsheba lost their firstborn son, God gave them another son named Solomon. You ever hear of the guy? David had hundreds of wives, thousands of children. Okay, just want to be honest, you know. Doesn't mean it was right. It led to his downfall. I don't know why he didn't figure that out, you know. It's not how we were created. But God chose to redeem and to restore what was lost. You're going to suffer a consequence for your sin, but that doesn't mean it's all bad. When you choose to turn to the Lord and he imparts his righteousness, he will give you good things. He gave them a son named Solomon. And despite all the wives and all the children that David had, God chose Solomon, the next born son to David and Bathsheba, through which the greatest legacy of any of his children had. 27 generations. <laughs> it's a long time to wait. 27 generations after Solomon, God chose to bring forth the birth of Jesus through his bloodline. How cool is that? God made a promise to David that his kingdom would reign forever, that there would never cease to be a king on his throne. And if you don't know the story, all kinds of David's sons tried to steal the throne. But God said Solomon would be the king, and he was. Had to take it back from Absalom. He took the throne. And not only did God honor his earthly throne, if you don't know the story, all the nations of the earth came to Solomon for wisdom. Solomon was the greatest leader of a nation to ever live and probably whoever will live. God did not only bless Solomon abundantly in the natural, because God, he never takes away more than he gives. He always gives more than he takes, right? He's just that good. But God chose Solomon. He chose to bless sin. I don't know how else to call it. Why? Because it was no longer sin when David took it before the Lord. It, it was forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, bottom of the ocean floor. When we take our sin before God, when we openly confess it, ain't sin no more. It's been covered. It's taken care of. And David, it's amazing. God chose Solomon to establish his eternal throne through. That Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, is his own throne forevermore, was born through David and Bathsheba's sin. Just amazing. Don't hide your sin in shame. Let God shine through it. Let God shine through your boneheaded stupidity. <laughs> you screwed up. You're bound and broken. You're addicted. But God, look what he did. Whew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, the genealogy of Jesus. And Jesse, the father of King David. The Bible, not only in Psalm 51, doesn't hide the sin of David. It's recorded for all time. Every other instance of the genealogy was this person was the dad of this guy, and this person was the dad of this guy, and this person was the dad of this guy. Okay, Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Then Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. 
David's sin was called out, even in the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. Because Solomon was the child of Bathsheba, Bathsheba, she was rightly the wife of Uriah. None of that was right. But it's recorded. Like, think about that. How cool is it? If the Word of God decides to record your sin, but it doesn't record it negatively anymore. God chose to redeem that sin. Do you, do you kind of get this idea? I'm sorry. I know it's, I'm going to shut up here in like two minutes. But I just, I, I can't communicate how exciting this is. How exciting this is. Our sin, our shame, our brokenness. We don't have to hide it. We don't have to sweep it under the rug. We can shout it from the rooftops because of God. Because God's redeemed it. God's restored us. We're something better. Solomon was the greatest king of all the earth. Can you imagine if they tried to hide that baby away because they were ashamed of him? Because he was born through this bad relationship? That son, I'm sure, reminded Bathsheba of her tragic loss, Uriah. Uriah was an amazing husband. That son was probably a reminder that David, her new husband, was the one who killed him, murdered him. But you see, the sting, remember the scriptures, where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of sin is gone. The shame and condemnation of sin is wiped away when the blood of Jesus makes our sin new. All of a sudden, when we talk about our sin, it's like you're separated from it. It's like that wasn't even you, because you're a new person. Now, has anybody ever experienced this before? I can talk about things that I'm so ashamed of in my life, but they're nothing to talk about now because there's no shame in them. There's no sting. There's no weight. There's no burden. It's, it's like a different life and a different person because it is. That can be your life. If you confess your sin and let the blood of Jesus wash you new, he can restore and redeem. You can take that thing out from under the rug and that can be the stepping stone to your greatest future. That can be the stepping stone to all of your purposes and plans that God has for you, right? We need to allow and to welcome sin in our lives to be revealed. Whew, it's easy to say, I don't do it. I'll confess to you this morning. I, I, I struggle with pride and arrogance, and even when I'm wrong, I got a reason why I was wrong, and that reason wasn't me. <laughs> Ask my wife. She'll, she'll confess my sin. I, I, man, yep, it's not good. It's not good. Because that, whew, you know, pride leads to a fall. That can lead to all kinds of nasty sins in your life if you don't let the Spirit keep that in check. It's uncomfortable. It offends us. We need to allow ourselves to get upset in a good way. Allow your feelings to get hurt. But don't just be sorry for yourself. Be godly, sorrowful. Take it to God. Let it lead to repentance. Let it lead to salvation. Let it lead to every promise of God in that situation, in that sin, in that brokenness. Become not just broken, but beautifully broken. Because there is forgiveness and healing. There is pioneering a path for redemption and restoration. That's where beauty is added to brokenness. Because that is where healing begins. Sorrow. And we need to be sorrowful. Even after you're saved, we need to be sorrowful for our sin. We need to be mournful for our sin. But don't stay there. Let it last for a night. Let it sting. Let it hurt. That's what's going to keep you away from it. Be mournful about it. But his joy is coming in the morning. I don't know if y'all have it. If I got the worship team come forward, spirit lead me. 
Spirit lead me. I'm springing it on them. Unpracticed, unrehearsed. Everybody's got their heads down coming forward. Yeah! I just feel like that's what the, the Lord wants us to end on. Um, this song, if we're able to pull it together, if not, we can always pull it up online. Let this be your prayer. Let this be the beginning of the new you, where you don't carry the weight of condemnation and sin and shame. Let that be your new testimony, your new story, that you're a brand new creation in him. The old's gone. The new's here, right? Yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's a rough one, but it can be so good. So good. Whew. True, proper worship. True, proper worship. It starts with that broken place. That place of brokenness. Oh, and so the, may the Spirit of God, the very presence of God, not only bring the conviction of, life, of sin into your life, may he not only bring the mourning and grief of the high price that was paid for the penalty of that sin, but may the Spirit of God shelter you and bring healing where there was brokenness. May he bring freedom where there was bondage. May he bring joy in this new glorious day. May he transform you into a brand new creation. That old is gone. You are a new life, a new creation in him. Oh, welcome to this glorious day where sin has no more power over your life where you walk in freedom, where there is nothing hidden in your life once again. Your life is on display for all to see the mighty power of our great God. Amen. Woo, yes. Amen. Yes. Be blessed. Thank you.